Oh, we might get interrupted by cats. Oh, that's fine. That's part of the magic. This is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by one of the most popular guests ever to be featured on this podcast. She was on the program in May, episode 77, still a relevant episode, but seven months later, it's a very prophetic episode. A lot has happened since then, and our paths weirdly intertwined in one of the biggest provincial politics controversies of the year. So, of course, it is fitting that she returned to the podcast to talk about it and to talk about a whole lot more. She is the twice-elected BC member of the Legislative Assembly for North Vancouver Lonsdale, representing the BC NDP. Previously, she was the Parliamentary Secretary overseeing TransLink. Last month, she was named the Minister of State for Infrastructure to oversee some specific public works projects here in British Columbia. And here we are, just a couple of North Shore kids. She is here via the magic of Zoom. She is, of course, Minister Bowen Ma. Minister Ma, how are you? Oh, it's always Bowen to you, Ma. (laughs) I'll keep that in mind, but I wanted to respect the promotion and the title. I appreciate that. I'm doing good. I'm glad to glad to be able to kind of see you, although I know that our podcast listeners won't be able to see any of this. We are here via the magic of Zoom, so I do appreciate you being here, quote unquote. I know you hit the ground running at the BC Ledge. You have a lot of work to do. So I'm appreciative of your time, and I'm glad we could do this. But I have to get this out of the way right away. Mo Senior was right. You are unbeatable in North Vancouver Lonsdale. <laughs> uh, well, he was he was right at least for this one election so far. <laughs> so in May, when I told you that Mo Senior said that this was going to happen, you said, you know, you're the first BCNDP MLA on the North Shore since 1991. And so based on the history, you actually expected to lose. It was a target seat. You played it off like you were an anomaly in history. But you've proven that you're a force. So were you pulling my leg when you gave me that modest answer back in May? (laughs) No, I I think that I was trying to make sure that I I, um, am realistic. Uh, I mean, of course, I was hoping to be reelected if I if I ran again. Um, Of course, I hope that the community uh, appreciates and supports and wants more of the work that I do, but we can't take anything for granted. I mean, these elections are for the people to decide, not not for me to decide whether or not I'm going to win the next one or the one after that or, or any election, really. Sure. And I appreciate that. You do know what we have to talk about, though, right? I'll let you ask. <laughs> I love that awkward pause. <laughs> so... Two weeks from Election Day, on the Saturday night of the Thanksgiving long weekend, a self-declared BC Liberal supporter emails me a link to a video of a virtual roast over Zoom for the retiring MLA, Ralph Sultan, who is a BC Liberal. And you and Ralph have a very endearing relationship. Obviously, you are jurisdictional neighbors as MLAs. He was the oldest MLA and you were the youngest MLA at the time. You're both UBC engineers. You both clearly had a and have a mutual respect for one another. 
But this is a BC Liberal fundraiser. You're not present at this roast. And this email tells me to go to a certain timestamp in the video. And as we know in that excerpt, another North Shore MLA made comments about you and how you acted around Ralph. So within receiving this video, I posted the excerpt online. And the rest is kind of history. The thing blows up. It becomes the scandal of the election. You held a press conference. I think you did three interviews, one with CBC, CKNW, and Connect FM. And that was about it. One thing I want to know, and I think it's important to know because you were the protagonist in this. I was the messenger. Where were you when you found out about the video that I released? When did you see it? What was your initial reaction? Walk me through the events as you experienced them. Oh, yeah. I mean, so as you know, uh, this isn't actually something that I like to talk in detail about because, you know, about how it how it impacted me personally. And uh, and it is funny that there are people who uh, will accuse me of milking it for coverage or whatever, because like you said, I, I actually said very little about the matter, given how big the story got. I, I actually did very few interviews in comparison to the number of interview requests that we received. Uh, there was the, the one written statement, the one general media availability, and uh, I think you listed three radio shows, and mm -hmm. that's it. And a lot of the reason why, we, why I asked that a lot of these interview requests be turned down was because I really didn't want to make it about me. And, and honestly, I didn't even want to make it about Jane. I think I said her name. Well, I mean, you didn't say her name. I said her name once in the whole thing um, where I gave her credit for texting me after the video came out. Um, but yeah, I, I, I give that context uh, to, I guess, uh, emphasize that I am sharing this with you on mm -hmm. your podcast very uh, specifically, partially because you asked me so nicely uh, before the podcast and, and partially because you were the one who released it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what did it feel like when I first saw the video? How did I find out about it? Where was I? I was at home um, when somebody texted me to check my Twitter account. And I think it was, it was a Saturday. Was it a Saturday night that you released it? It was Saturday night, yeah. Um, so I would have been at home. and I, Yeah, so, so I received this text and they said, check your Twitter account, which I think um, on its own, that part of this story, a lot of my critics won't believe me because they automatically believe that I'm on I'm on Twitter 24-7 anyway, but I did have to be directed to Twitter that night. Sure. Um, and the first time I watched it, I didn't quite catch everything that was said about me. And I kind of just rolled my eyes and was like, whatever. Uh, or at least that's what I told myself, because I think that uh, that's what you learn to do as a woman in male-dominated industries. And I've always been one. I've always worked in male-dominated industries. Uh, but I... I remember that my ears were kind of ringing and then I watched it again and I remember hearing her mention my, my cleavage <laughs> and, and then I'm noticing that the interactions on your tweet are clicking up pretty fast and I'm just, I'm just physically numb 
at this point. My head is really foggy. Uh, and I realize that while I might not be a stranger to these kinds of things and these kinds of comments, I've never had them said about me so publicly. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a really public thing. And, and my instinct, um, interestingly enough, was not to be angry or anything like that, or even to harbor any um, unhappy feelings about the people who were on the call or the people who were, uh, who were speaking about me. Uh, my, my instinct was actually to want to defend myself against the accusation, hmm. like in this kind of desperate way, like, no, that's not what I was trying to do. Like, this is, this is not at all what I was trying to do. I'm trying to be nice. Uh, I mean, Ralph is very hard of hearing. I, I always get up really close to him because otherwise he can't hear me. I mean, Ralph and I disagree a lot politically, right? But he's also very elderly. Um, he, he only wears a hearing aid in one ear. I was raised to to respect my elders and, and to be kind to people whenever possible. Um, and yeah, I just remember feeling really ashamed. Like what, what if, what if people actually believe this, that, that I'm showing off my cleavage to a man who is two and a half times my age. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, really uncomfortable, Mo. And mm-hmm. and I don't, I'm not upset with you for releasing it. I, I, I mean, uh, so don't don't take this uh, that way. But but yeah, it was like like if it had been said in private, I probably would have been able to handle it, um, like dismiss it the way that a lot of women dismiss these kinds of things. But because it was so public, I knew I had to respond, and I was actually really wanting to respond that night mm-hmm. um and my if i had responded that night i it probably would have been very like this is not what i was trying to do um no he's very hard like very kind of defending myself like this isn't what happened hmm. um but i was convinced by some good friends to sleep on it um and in the morning uh when i went back to the tweet uh, and I saw that people were overwhelmingly upset at them and not me. I have to tell you, Mo, that was a huge load off my shoulders. Mm. I don't know what I would have done if the reaction had gone differently, if people had believed that I had flirtatious intentions when I had absolutely no intentions of that kind behind it. And... And I think that it was actually, in large part, the response from the public that in turn empowered me to give the response that I did. Because it made me realize um, that this is something so many women go through. So many women who are accused of being things that are completely beyond their control. Like it's one thing to be accused of something when you know inside, like, yeah, maybe I was totally doing that. And you know what? Women have the right to, you know, like if they want to go up to a guy in a bar and they want to flirt with them, or if they want to have like, it, like if, if it's their choice to engage in that kind of interaction, all of the, all the power to them. Mm-hmm. But it's a totally different thing to be accused of something that you know 
you had absolutely no intention and no part in. And it's so, it's a whole other helpless, powerless feeling. Um, and it was the response from the public that really gave me a lot of strength. Yeah. I, I know that a lot of people will, will um, offer really nice comments to me about the way that I responded. And they'll say that, you know, I, I gave them strength. This is kind of like a circular thing, right? Like the, the public response gave me strength, which gave, which gave, in turn, gave me the strength to respond in the way that I did, which in turn gave other people and other women the strength that they needed to also um, feel more empowered. So, yeah, I mean, overall, I think that we as a province learned a lot from that. And one of the most important things that I learned was that our provinces has gotten to a place that I can, that I feel very proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that was a really long answer. I'm sorry. That's the first time I've really kind of talked through all of it. Um, you never have to apologize. And I appreciate <laughs> you being so frank and and candid about that again, you know, when the video and the clip came across my desk, I didn't know how it was going to be received. I I knew this was something I had a visceral reaction to it myself more on the cringy level, but it's a really different story when you are the target of something like that. And I think it's important to, to talk about how it actually feels being on that end. I mean, like you said, there's one one side where it's private, but there's a whole other side where a lot of people don't know what it's like to have that out in public like that. And, and that's why I wanted to ask. It's not, it's not out of salacious curiosity, but it's, it's more just, it's more just on a personal thing of how, of how that felt like. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I mean, of course it was uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, but it's also demonstrative of the kinds of experiences that so many women have. And in a lot of ways, I think that it was healthy for our province to go through that. Um, like women across the province, seeing that they're not alone, that, and sadly, sadly, you can get to the place where you are sitting in one of the highest uh, honors uh, and ways to serve your your communities um and still be subject to that it's uh, a sad indication of how far left we have to go towards equal respect for women and yet a a powerful demonstration of how far we have come together so let's talk about that because this thing blows up like 300,000 views just online Obviously, many more views on television, on radio. You have North Shore moms mobilizing on Facebook. I was on a panel with Nikki Hill, and she said, you know, the amount of NDP volunteers that signed up in the wake of that during a pandemic, no less, definitely proved that this was not a partisan NDP thing. This really struck a nerve in the culture. And what I can't get over, and we heard this in the leaked BC Liberal call after the election. BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, in his last days as a leader, still called this, quote-unquote, the most trivial thing, saying that the response was, quote-unquote, unfair. 
And there are people that still don't get it. They don't get that this was beyond politics. And this really genuinely pissed a lot of people off. So what is it that some people just don't understand about this incident? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm not surprised uh, that that the BC Liberals viewed it that way because it's so common, right? I mean, their their understanding of that uh, instant incident will be like, well, that was it's just like all of these other things and other things that we've said in in other contexts. So what's the big deal? Because it is very much um, it, it exists throughout society still, mm-hmm. and uh, but things are changing and they need to figure out how to change with the times. They need to figure out how to evolve. Uh, I mean, in the video, um, the speaker mentioned telling that story before multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so multiple times before that story was told and nobody had told the storyteller that that, that, that wasn't appropriate. Nobody had told them that, that this was a problem. Um, or maybe they might want to choose a different story to tell next time. Like it's normal for them, and that's why they saw it as no big deal. What they don't understand is that women are starting to rise up and say, "You know what? I'm not going to stand for this anymore." And I credit the Me Too movement a lot for that. Uh, when so many powerful voices spoke out, when the silence was deafening around sexism and and discrimination against women, even though women have existed for as long as men have, as far as we know, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we've still got such a long way to go in terms of equal respect for women. It's, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's sad. And yet I think there are silver linings to all of this. So the irony in all of this is that in May, when we sat down for a podcast, also over Zoom, episode 77, I really pressed you on whether or not you felt personally targeted by the BC Liberals. And, you know, you said the seat was a target seat, but you hoped it wasn't personal. But clearly, my hunch was right. You were personally targeted by the party. Jane Thornthwaite literally says in the roast that the BC Liberal caucus had discussions about how, quote, we've got to do something about that Bowen Ma. And... With all due respect, you were a rookie MLA. You've always been very popular, very tech savvy, but you weren't in cabinet. It it just seems like there was a certain obsession over you within certain circles of that caucus. So looking at it today, do you feel like you're in BC Liberal crosshairs for reasons that go beyond just the seat and the position that you hold? Because there has to be something that explains this desire to quote unquote, get Bowen Ma. <laughs> uh, you know what? I I don't know what to say to that. Uh, you you probably need to ask the BC Liberals this question and see what it is that they say. But frankly, if they want to spend their time targeting me instead of focusing on fixing the problems they have in their own dumpster fire of a party right now, that's fine by me. But it seems to me that they should really be remembering what they're supposed to be here for. And that's to serve their constituents, their communities and British Columbians. And I'm going to leave it to the voters to decide if coming after me is what they want their leaders to be doing during this time. 
And I understand that response, and I know there's going to be some listeners who go, oh, like, maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but <laughs> but, but here's an example. You know, there, there's a new media outlet called The Orca, and they do have press gallery credentials, so I'm sure you're aware of them. And on a recent BC Poly Hot Stove podcast, the former speechwriter for BC Liberal Premier Christy Clark, McLean Kay, and the former spokesperson for now-retired BC Liberal MLA Rich Coleman, Jordan Bateman, so McLean Kay and Jordan Bateman, they felt that, quote, your propensity to not put on a filter, uh, end quote, is why you're not a real minister and why you're sitting at the, quote, kids' table. McLean Kay comes out and says that your popularity has a ceiling. These are former BC Liberal Party operatives. They're talking about you. They're throwing shade under the guise of analysis when you haven't really done any legislative work yet so far under your new ministry. And, and fair, you know, they don't speak for the party, but this outlet is clearly speaking to the party. So without deflecting and saying you should ask the BC Liberals, when we look at this so fresh off the controversy in the election, doesn't that make you think, oh, wow, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to be a target? Has that ever crossed your mind? Have you resigned to the fact that you are going to be a target? Well, I don't know. I mean, eventually, I think they're going to bore of me. Uh, I don't think that I'm the only interesting BC NDP MLA on our caucus. We've got a really fantastic caucus of 57 MLAs. Um, I think something like 23 or 25 MLAs that are brand new. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm certain they're going to find interesting things about a lot of us. But I do think that when, when political parties have difficulty uh, I guess counteracting people's ideas that they might turn to attacking people's character. So if they're if they're having trouble figuring out how to respond to my what I stand for and respond to uh, the things that I say and the the people, that I that I believe I champion for, um, then they're going to come after me uh, through character attacks or or other more, uh, I guess, salacious <laughs> reasons. So I I don't know. I, I just don't spend that much time thinking about it, Mo. Honestly, because there's so much work to do for British Columbians, and in the first couple of weeks that I've been appointed Minister of State for Infrastructure so far, I've basically had to do two jobs. And, and being, an, being an MLA on its own is already more than a full-time job. And to add a ministerial role on top of that keeps me pretty busy working for the people of British Columbia. So I don't spend a ton of time thinking about the BC Liberals. And I mean, I guess I could speculate, but I just don't think about it that much. <laughs> Can I speculate? Yeah, I mean, that's what you're there for, I think. And that's why people listen to you. <laughs> they love your speculations. Well, Bowen, I told you this in May. I think they're jealous. I, I think you have exceeded uh, a popularity that most MLAs and most local personalities never had and never will achieve. And whether it's them saying, we need to get Bowen Ma, literal quote, by the way, or her, her popularity has a ceiling, 
or she's too outspoken for her own good. I think it's jealousy. And, and, and you know, people are going to say, oh, are you saying that Bowen is, is immune from criticism? Of course you're not. You're a publicly elected official, but the disproportional nature of the focus on you, the way that you're talked about, I think you scare the shit out of these guys. And we've, we've seen it not just with you, but to a lesser extent, we've seen it with characterizations of Ravi Kalon, with Vicky Sharma, with Grace Lore. Oh, they're angry. They're extreme. Do I know what I'm talking about, Bowen, or am I off base here? I mean, I do observe some of what you're talking about in terms of um, how they're speaking about Yanki Sharma and Ravi Kalon um, and a lot of other uh, forward-thinking young politicians that have joined uh, forces with the BC NDP to serve British Columbians. Uh, maybe they are scared. And you know what? I'll take that as a compliment. One incident that was brought up in that aforementioned podcast that, that I want to bring up to you, because it was new to me. McLean Kay, again, he's the former speechwriter for Premier Christy Clark. He said that you were swatted down, quote unquote, by BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. So I looked for this incident online and I know that the tweet, I know the tweet that they were talking about. You tweeted a call for fundraising in June. So prior to the way prior to the election and you tweeted, quote, Imagine for a moment that I lost North Van Lonsdale in 2017, and instead of Premier Horgan, Christy Clark was in control of BC through COVID-19. Dot, dot, dot. If you're in a position to do so, please consider donating. You deleted the tweet, but were you actually swatted down by Adrian Dix? Because I couldn't find that anywhere. Yeah, I, I actually have no idea what they're talking about. I don't remember being swatted down by Adrian Dix or anyone. I, I, I know the tweet that you're talking about for sure. And it was, it was a tweet that I think was poorly timed. It didn't quite give off the tone that I intended and I regretted it pretty much immediately. So it was up for about 15 minutes. Um, but as far as I can remember, nobody in like none of my colleagues spoke to me about that tweet. I deleted it on my own. Um, and yeah, I have, I actually have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so is McLean K lying? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he's interpreting, but if, if Adrian swatted it down, he never like called me or, and nobody ever told me and None, and I asked this of our communication staff, and, and they don't know what they're talking about either. So I, I don't know, man. <laughs> I understand you don't want to call anyone a liar, but we can reach the conclusion that this never happened. I, as far as I know, it, I have no idea what they're talking about. As far as I know, it didn't happen. The, the last point that I, that I want to bring up with regards to them, they brought up this idea that your cabinet appointment was actually an omission. And they said that you probably felt like it was an omission. So was your appointment as the Minister of State for Infrastructure an omission in cabinet, presumably because you're too outspoken? I mean, that's a weird omission, isn't it? <laughs> that's what they're saying. I'm, that's not coming from me. That's why I have to quote them, because this is not a question that I have, but it's an accusation that's being thrown out there. And they, they're saying that you probably feel that way. It, like I, I do have the honor of sitting around the cabinet table, though. So, is it? Are they implying that it's an omission by 
putting me on the executive council that that's the omission. I, I, I think they're saying that minister of state is not a real minister. And so the omission is that you weren't appointed as a minister with your own file effectively. All right. That is their opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, ministers of state um, have the honor of sitting around the cabinet table, just like any other minister. Um, and, and it is an incredible privilege to serve on the executive council, also known as cabinet. So I'm switching between the two terms, but sure. the executive bridge Columbia is John Horgan's cabinet. Um, and I have the, the incredible humbling honor and privilege of, of being there with my colleagues, um, to discuss the issues that are important to British Columbians. And I, I struggle to see that as an omission. So let's talk about those issues. We'll move away from the feelings and some of the gossip and we'll get into some of the policy stuff because I know this is the stuff that you actually like to talk about. What is your vision as the Minister of State for Infrastructure? I know you're overseeing some certain public works projects. What's your vision? Yeah, I mean, I have a pretty prescriptive mandate that itemizes several major projects. So... It includes the delivery of the George Massey Crossing, the Patello Bridge Replacement Project, uh, Surrey-Langley Skytrain, the Broadway subway line with an eventual terminus out to to UBC. Um, It also talks, very interestingly, and and something that I'm very passionate about as well, about uh, moving planning forward for a rapid transit line out to the North Shore Hmm. and even exploring rail out to the Fraser Valley. I, I love that there's such a, a heavy emphasis on, on public transit um, infrastructure in my mandate letter. Uh, and I mean, aside from that, though, my work as a, a minister of state for infrastructure and my vision is the same as the vision for, for the entire province by the entire government. We want to be able to lead British Columbia through and out of this pandemic and then rebuild British Columbia into a better place than before. Make sure that our economic recovery actually serves everyone. Because when we don't do that properly, if you don't um, do, if you don't bring economic recovery through, and sorry, my cat is scratching on my door right now, so I hope I'm not ruining your audience. All good, all good. Um, but if we're not, <laughs> if we're not deliberate about the way that we recover our economy, economic recovery can very, very easily benefit only people at the top or only segments of the population. And so we want to make sure that we're building British Columbia out for everybody. So my my vision as the Minister of State for Infrastructure is really the same as my vision as a as an MLA for my community. I want people's lives to be better. And and I also want a strong climate action plan, not just for British Columbia, but for all of Canada, because I definitely believe that we are in a climate emergency and we need to take that seriously. I foresee us in a couple of years, maybe even a couple of months, talking about this specifically, because I think this is has potential to be its own one-hour podcast. But I do want to move on to some issues that are outside of your portfolio directly, but I think that you're still accountable for as an MLA and and, and in government. COVID-19. 
The numbers have been on the rise. Was calling an election ultimately a mistake that led to more cases? No, I don't believe that. And in fact, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been pretty clear that 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 wasn't the case. I just wonder if an election signaled to British Columbians, hey, we can have an election. So sure, you know, you can have private parties at home and you can expand your bubble. I wonder if it sent the wrong message. I mean, we were we took COVID-19 safety pretty seriously during our election. Uh, And I think the way that the NDP ran the campaign signaled very strongly that these were not normal times and this was not a normal election either. I didn't knock on a single door, no, not a single door the entire election campaign. And that is weird because we knocked, my riding alone knocked on thousands and thousands of doors in 2017. Hmm. Um, On election day in 2017, I had, I think we had about 200 plus volunteers on that, on, like on shift on that one single day driving people to the polls, pulling people out on the doors, uh, from the doors. This is back in 2017, of course. Mm -hmm. And this year, not a single, not a single vote was pulled at the doors. Wow. Not a single one. Um, My campaign office in 2017 was bustling, absolutely bustling, filled to the brim. We had events all the time. We had volunteers running in and out, food for volunteers, election day the the office was crammed and this year it was the campaign staff and that was it Hmm. quiet as a bug so i think it was very clear from the way that the bcnp ran the campaign that covid19 was with us that even during a campaign we were risking um not not doing what we normally do during during a campaign uh, which is knocking on doors, shaking hands, kissing babies, uh, you know, all of that. We we found different ways to do it. Uh, and like everything else in our life right now, we're finding different ways mm-hmm. to, to move on. And we've got to be able to to continue on with the really important aspects of life that, that makes society work and a strong democracy and the ability for people to have a say in the kind of future that their government lays out before them is a part of democracy. Justin McElroy from the CBC recently took Premier Horgan to task on Twitter when it comes to the public release of COVID-19 data. He showed that other provinces release far more data and far more granular data. BC Greens leader Sonia Furstenau has also been calling for the collection and transparent release of disaggregated data. So why doesn't BC have the same data when it comes to COVID-19 as other provinces? I mean, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question in detail. Uh, The best person would be either Dr. Bonnie Henry or Health Minister Adrian Dix. But from what I understand, British Columbia is now releasing um, more granular data than, than they have before. And a big part of why that's possible now is sadly, um, because there are so many cases, it's no longer, um, it's no longer so much of a privacy issue. Hmm. This is a really sad reason to be able to do that. So Dr. Bonnie Henry was very, very clear in the beginning of the pandemic that she was 
limiting um, the granularity of information that she was providing in terms of regionality and, and where those cases were in order to protect the privacy of the people who actually had COVID-19. She was really, really concerned about the stigma and the impact that that would have on families if, if people around them knew that they were COVID-19 carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the case numbers are so high that it's not so easy to nail down exactly who's got what. Um, now, in terms of disaggregated data, um, you're probably, I'm guessing you're probably asking about race-based data. Mm-hmm. And that that is something that uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has emphasized um, that she supports the collection of. Um, but there are some some checks and balances that need to be made around, you know, uh, making sure that the collection of this data isn't used, um, doesn't end up being discriminatory and isn't used in a discriminatory manner, especially given what we know is systemic racism. We, we often don't know how systemic racism can impact people. Um, and so that's why the Human Rights Commissioner has been uh, brought into the conversation. And it's also... A big reason why Rashan Singh, MLA Rashan Singh, is has been named now the Parliamentary Secretary for Anti-Racism, which is, I think, such a positive move. We used to have a Parliamentary Secretary for Multiculturalism, which is very good as well, but it's not the same as anti-racism. You know, there's there's something much more. Um, what is the I difference? Guess, Can you explain it? Yeah, like like celebrating cultures is one thing, and it is very important. But actually addressing discrimination and hate, that takes more than than photo ops and and dressing up in in the regalia or the attire of mm-hmm. culture. That takes serious introspective um, work on the part of government and on the part of institutions to break down barriers and to identify the harms that different policies are causing. Yeah. One sounds like a positive PR campaign, which is great. You know, people feel good. And then the other sounds like really digging into the the ugly realities of our society. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the work that has to be done, not just the, the, the happier parts of, a multicultural society, you know? I mean, I, I do think that celebrating different cultures is part of anti-racism work, but mm-hmm. it's not quite uh, all that that you need when it comes to anti-racism. Setting aside the public health orders, the BCNDP took a lot of criticism on the election trail, and obviously, you know, you guys won, so fair enough, but there's this idea <laughs> out there that, you guys have no plan for businesses and the economy in terms of COVID-19 recovery. Todd Stone, even after the throne speech, kind of raised this concern. So what is the plan for economic recovery in this province in broad strokes? Yeah, I mean, we're going to be releasing a lot more information uh, about what's coming up moving forward, of course. Uh, But right now, it's really about managing COVID-19 um, for this moment right now where we are seeing 
like over 700 cases a day and dozens of, of people are dying every week. Um, it's about maintaining a strong response uh, on the health crisis that we're faced with. And we know that if we lose control of case transmission around COVID-19, our economy is, uh, I I don't even want to think about what would happen if we completely lost control. But we saw how the, how do I say, back in, back in March, when COVID-19 first came, first like came into British Columbia mm-hmm. and public health measures were brought in to keep people at home, we saw that what that did to our economy. We saw what that did to businesses. Mm-hmm. And when we were able to actually target the response a bit more, and enable the safe return of businesses we saw uh we saw our economy climb out of that hole and then the second and then the second wave hit uh around early to mid-november uh and we're definitely seeing businesses struggle again because we're asking people to stay home again so our economic recovery is very, very, very much tied to our ability to actually lead an effective healthcare response. That's the focus right now. Is it fair to say that by the next budget in the new year, there will be a more tangible economic response? Because obviously by that time, the vaccines will be rolling out. Can British Columbians expect a, a more tangible vision by then? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, that is the budget that will actually leave us, lead us out of the pandemic. Right now, we're, we're trying to get through it. I want to go back to feelings, Bowen. That's my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, I mean, we, we know the numbers. We know how this has affected the province and certainly affected people who fell sick people who died, their families. But I want to talk about you on a personal level. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you personally? Well, a lot of my personal life uh, is non-existent because I'm working as an MLA all the time. Uh, It's certainly changed the way that I can serve my community, that's for sure. it used to be that a big part of my work was attending community events, and we don't have any of those anymore. It, would, it used to be a big part of my work that I would have meetings with community members, um, meet constituents out on the streets and in festivals. Those aren't happening. And so I've really had to change the way that I serve people and the way that I get information out, which also means a lot more money spent on Um, what would be categorized under my disclosure for my community office as advertising. Mm. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to flag for you right now that my advertising spend for 2020 to 2021 is through the roof. Okay. (laughs) So in, in March or April, when the community office budgets are all disclosed to the public and 
Um, the breaker looks through them. He's going to see, <laughs> he's going to see like a massive advertising spend. I'm telling you right now. And a big part of that is because I spent so much money buying reusable masks. Hmm. One of the cheapest way, one of the most cost-effective ways that, uh, um, that I was able to, to buy those masks was I actually bought them from uh, a local, uh, a local printer called dad's printer for $3 a mask. And it came with custom printing and because it's custom printing, it has to be counted as advertising, mm. but it's about, I think maybe $27,000 on reusable masks. I bought in total 7,000. I've distributed 5,000 so far and we'll have 2000 more in, in early 2021. Um, and I don't regret it. I think that it's a good service. And I think that like we've given so many to the lookout shelter every once in a while, they, they ask us for more masks to give to their clients. Um, we've given out so many reusable masks out on the streets and mm -hmm. to, to people who, who might not otherwise have the 10 or $15 to buy one over on, uh, you know, over from their local store, uh, drug mart or, or the means to make them. I think that it was a good investment and I think it's a good service. So I'm just flagging that for you there. <laughs> and I, I, I want to add, I, I want to butt in and add, I ran into you at the shipyards in North Vancouver. I've seen the mask and it says nothing about the BCNDP. So yes. it's not party branded. No, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. No, everything coming out of my community office is strictly nonpartisan. Uh, yeah, we're very careful about that. Um. I guess what, what what I'm asking is like, and I know this isn't your favorite topic, but for me personally, like I felt COVID was an emotional roller coaster. I mean, I'd be kind of down. My mood would be down for weeks and then, you know, pop back up and I get productive again. And I think it was a real struggle for a lot of people. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I haven't been personally affected by COVID. I haven't had family members affected by COVID. I still have a job. But even in that, privileged position, it's just felt so taxing. And, and I've just got out of another cycle where I just, for a couple of weeks, just felt tired every day. So I'm wondering, did you, did you go through similar pangs? Yeah. You know, I'm extremely fortunate because I'm actually quite introverted. And even for me, I miss those social interactions. And so I cannot imagine how difficult this has been for people who are much more extroverted, um, who, who crave um, the events and, and being able to have host parties and, and needing to be around their, their family members. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I of course, want to be around my family members and so forth, but I'm also acknowledging that I, I'm rather privileged in, in this context mm -hmm. because I, I am more introverted than, um, than a lot of people which also sounds weird because I'm also a politician. I am. Uh, but I see every day how it negatively impacts community members that I serve. And yeah, that, that breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart. Um, especially when, when we had, when I had to send out a, an MLA's bulletin um, sharing the news that, that Dr. Bonnie Henry had, announced an extension to the enhanced COVID-19 measures banning mm. social gatherings all the way into January 8th. Uh, I knew that I would be breaking a lot of hearts. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that really does make me feel uh, pretty emotional. <laughs> um, my own, I have to tell you, Mo, my, my own mother stopped talking to me for five days. Really? When I, oh, she was so furious. Um, I think she blamed me personally, actually, that, that I probably, that we probably wouldn't be able to get together for, for Christmas. That me, my partner, my sister and her partner and her can come together. Um, and I, I imagine that a lot of families are feeling uh, similarly disappointed, distressed, and and really just, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a tough Christmas for sure. Are we going to see investments or at least a cultural push and a push from the government for mental health services? There are already uh a lot more investments into mental health services now than there were before, but there's still a lot more to do. And a lot of your listeners might not know this, but there's actually, uh, they, we actually rolled out a whole lot of remote mental health services, uh, free and low cost counseling services and, and so forth uh, during COVID-19. And if they go to the government website, gov.bc.ca forward slash COVID, um, there should be a link there to, to find uh, these mental health services. Um, so there are options there, but I, I do acknowledge that remote mental health supports is not the same as mm-hmm. in-person mental health supports. Is, it, it can't be fully replaced that way. And I fully, 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 100% acknowledge that we've got a lot more to do. Bowen, I have to admit, the central theme that emerged this year for This is Van Color was systemic discrimination, both sexism and racism. I discussed this with mm-hmm. Tamara Taggart, with Manjot Baines and Tanya Ganaba, Angela Sterrett, Jagmeet Singh, Dino Archie, Nadia Stewart, former Premier Christy Clark, current Premier John Horgan, Jill Crop, and yourself in May. This has been a topic that continually comes up and not just because I want to talk about it or I put it on the agenda of, you know, let's talk about this, but largely because the guests want to talk about it or because there's news around it and the guests want to talk about that because it's topical. What have you learned about systemic discrimination this year, given the controversy that we talked about earlier, given the BLM movement, everything that's happened this year? I know that you obviously look at this very closely and are a continuous learner. Has there been something this year that, that really brought things into perspective for you? I mean, it, it makes clear for all of us how pervasive it is. Right. And I think that especially in talking about the video that we started talking about in the very beginning of this podcast, um, it's a, it's a real example of how people who are being discriminated against can also be a tool of their own oppression. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, let, let me talk about the video directly. I am not angry with Jane. And I never asked her for an apology uh, for me. Uh, I did ask Andrew Wilkinson for an explanation on behalf of British Columbians but I didn't personally feel like I needed an apology 
And I never felt upset with her. And the reason why is because when I was younger, I believe that I've been where she is, where, you know, you're trust, you're just trying to, you're trying to almost be a part of the old boys club. Mm. You're trying to find a way to survive as, as a woman surrounded by powerful men. And this doesn't excuse what she did uh, or said, and it wouldn't excuse anything that I have said in the past that I might regret today. Um, I hope that I have learned from them <laughs> a little bit earlier than maybe she's learned it. But Jane tried to be in that old boys club that has discriminated against and oppressed women for millennia. And I think she found also how quickly that old boys club can turn on her. At the end of the day, she wasn't in it. And Andrew Wilkinson threw her under the bus so hard. And I am actually angry at Andrew Wilkinson on her behalf. He didn't throw Lori Thrones under the bus that hard. He threw Jane under the bus. And so she tried to find a way to fit into that world. And it did not work. And that is a lesson to all of us who might find ourselves trying to, trying to be a part of that club, thinking that we can overcome our own uh, womanness or, you know, colorness <laughs> in a society that devalues us by being a part of the other side. Uh, Instead, what we really need to be doing is breaking down those barriers. It has to be done for everybody. And I have to say that I think the reason, I think one of the main reasons why systemic discrimination, both sexism and racism, comes up so frequently in your podcast, Mo, is because of the demographics of the people that you choose to have on your podcast. You bring women onto your podcast to talk. You bring people of color onto your podcast to, to share their experiences and their lives. And these, this sexism and this racism, is, it's part of our experiences. If every podcaster, if every interviewer had an interviewee slate as diverse as you do, this would also be a theme in a lot of the discussions that they have. You are providing a platform for these pervasive, systemic, important issues to be talked about. And that's why it's coming out. I, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. I don't look, you know, it's always in mind, but I, I don't look at trying to meet any quotas. I mm -hmm. look at people that interest me and that have interesting stories and that touch on things that I find interesting. I, I, I don't even try to play to an audience. I, it's, I've always dr driven it by what I'm passionate about. And this topic keeps coming up. And I, as much as I appreciate those kind words, and I really do, they mean a lot to me. You know, even I can do better. And I've, and I've looked, there'll be occasionally times where I check in and I go, you know, how, div how diverse is, is my guest list? And, and there's, 
there's areas where I can work on and, and areas where now I'm starting to learn a little more because I want to make sure that anyone who comes on here isn't here to meet a quota. I want to make sure that everyone who comes on here, I am stoked on. And occasionally that takes time for me to learn about certain things. And I've always pushed for that type of diversity in, in any media. And, and, I, and I want stories. And, and that's why, and I know you shy away from it a little bit, but that's why I think that personal angle is so important. Because these stories are important. And it's important to know how people actually feel in their lived experiences and what those lived experiences are. So, so that's my goal. And I appreciate you seeing, seeing that for, for what it is. So thank you, Bowen. No problem. This has been quite the treat. I appreciate your open heart. You brought it on your sleeve, even over zoom. What is your call to action? Oh boy. My call to action. Well, we are still absolutely in a pandemic right now. We need to be following the orders that Dr. Bonnie Henry is giving us. We need to be watching out for us. Pardon me. We need to be watching out for each other. And we're going to be able to do all of this, get through our, get ourselves through the pandemic. We're going to be able to get out of the pandemic. We're going to be able to build a better BC. But all of this has to start with what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been telling us all along. We've got to be kind. We've got to be calm. We've got to be safe. Amazing. Minister Ma, Bowen, I want to thank you for your time. I think you represent the future of this province. I think you inspire young people, women, people of color, all people of all different political stripes. I'm a fan and it's not ideological. I genuinely like how you do politics. You were a big part of my podcast and media journey this year, for better or worse. And I know that a large part of that was unpleasant for you. But I think by opening up the larger conversation as you did and you, can, and you continue to do, you're doing the culture an incredible service. So thank you and happy holidays to you and your family. And to you. People, what can I say? She's left a mark on this podcast. She is the BC Minister of State for Infrastructure. She is Minister Bowen Ma. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>